All right. What's up, guys? Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, yes, like Drew said, my name is Rachel. Um, there's two Rachels that are on staff at the table, actually. Um, and if you've met Rachel Vincent, you know that she's the cooler one. Um, but I am teaching tonight. And this is my first time teaching, so if I, like, spontaneously combust... No, that's just the nerves, or if I get red. I just have a naturally red complexion, okay? So um, anyways, before we get started talking about our text tonight, I do have to tell you that tonight we're talking about this encounter with Jesus, um, and it's between these two sisters and these two siblings. And I think if there's one thing that I feel qualified to talk about, it is siblings. Um, so some of you may know this, some of you may not, but I'm one of seven siblings. Um, and so that means, if you do the math, there are nine people in my family. And I'm not really sure if my parents were going for like enough for a softball team, like just enough, but we were borderline having to go around in a passenger van. So I praise God that we did not have any subs on our softball team. Um, thank the Lord, seriously, for that. I don't know if I'd be okay today if I spent my childhood in a passenger van. Um, but I want to show you a picture of my family. Let me throw that up there. Okay, so this is my family, and if you're good at math, and you're good at counting, you might be thinking there's a lot more than nine people in there. And that's true. Um, that's because my four older siblings um, are married. And this is actually, I didn't think about this, but this is in Scott's um, house, actually, whenever um, Aaron and Holly got engaged, which is really fun. Um, but before we were this family of nine plus four, 13, um, and actually my oldest sister has a baby, and this literally, I'll just be quite honest with you, this has nothing to do with my lesson, but since Alex showed you a picture of his niece, I feel obligated to show you a picture of mine. So this is um, Avery Jolie, objectively the cutest baby who has ever lived. Um, and I know that's kind of a big claim because I haven't seen your baby picture. Um, I haven't seen a lot of babies' pictures, but that's my niece, and the ant life chose me. So anyways, um, that has nothing to do with my lesson. I just wanted to show you a picture of my niece. Um, so before we had all these extras and we had Avery, um, we were kind of the original seven. So I'm going to have Emma throw up a picture of the original seven. This is me in my prime. This is 10-year-old Rachel, possibly. Um, proof that boys have always thought it's cool to not smile in a picture. Um, but I want you to imagine doing life in one house with that all going on at the same time. So my brother, my littlest brother, Ben, he's so cute. Um, he, whenever he was younger, obviously he was a baby, we had like baby, toddler, tweens, teens, and like people about to go to college. So that's like very chaotic. And with siblings, no one can really push your buttons like your siblings. Raise your hand if you have siblings. Okay, wow, that's awesome. A lot of you guys have siblings. So if you raised your hand for having siblings, you also raised your hand for having fought with your siblings because they're one and the same. And <laughs> you know that's true. Um, I remember distinctly this one time um, that my, my siblings really pushed it over the edge for me. Um, we had just finished reading this book called Treasure Island. Has anybody ever read that book? Yeah. All right. Okay, Alec, yes. 
Um, okay, so it's this book, it's a really good book, um, but there's this villain, and it's kind of strange now looking back, um, but he's this blind guy who literally gives people notes, and when they open up the note, it is this black dot of death. It was very creative on the plot of the storytellers, I will say. Um, and they, they open it, and they just, like, die. I don't know if it's when they see it, if it's a chemical reaction. The book did not explain that. Um, but there was one time after we had finished reading that book that I was playing in my room like the angel child that I was, and I <laughs> see from around the corner my siblings, I wasn't sure which one. There's a lot. You just kind of take a guess sometimes. Um, throw this paper airplane into my room. And I'm like, oh, this is so fun. Like, I'm being included. Um, <laughs> that's what happens when you have a big family. You're like, am I being included or excluded? I don't know. Um, and so I open up the paper airplane. And lo and behold, there is a black dot on it. And in case that they forgot what it was that we had just read, in case that they that I didn't get the understanding of what they were trying to communicate. They went ahead and just writ, wrote out what they were trying to say. And I kid you not, underneath the black dot, it said, you're dead meat. I love my siblings. <laughs> um, it was in that moment that I knew I had to get my last will and testament together because surely I was going to die. I had seen the black dot, and also I saw... Well, you're dead meat. Um, and so it was quite a revelation when I went to my mom, and she told me that, in fact, I was not going to die, and that they actually used washable markers, so it was quite harmless. Um, but I remember being so mad and so embarrassed that I thought I was going to die from looking at this colored black dot on this paper airplane and being so frustrated with my siblings. Um, and so when we're in this passage tonight... I just want you to imagine a little bit of the tension, like, hitting the fan. When everything in your family is going crazy, um, that's a little bit of what's happening tonight. So we're going to be in Luke 10, if you want to turn there. Um, we're going to be at the very end of Luke 10, and we have kind of a short passage today. Um, it is about Mary and Martha. So if you've been in church for a little bit, you may have heard this story um, of Mary and Martha, and I have to admit, I've heard this story before, and when I knew that I was going to be teaching, um, I was like, a little bit of like, I feel like I know this story, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to draw out anything that I don't already know, and that sounds so, like, pretentious, as I said it out loud, um, but what I came to as I was, like, preparing for this lesson is actually um, that there's so much more whenever you come to the text believing that you don't know everything already. Um, and so if you've heard this text before, um, I would just encourage you um, to really come at it with fresh eyes. So um, we're going to be in Luke 10, 38, and I'm actually going to read through till 42. This is kind of a short passage, um, and then we will um, kind of walk through what's happening in this text. So it says, while they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed, her, welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. 
The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, so I read this text as I'm getting ready, and I'm thinking about these two sisters, Mary and Martha. What do we know about Mary and Martha before we kind of jump in to what's happening here? So we know that they're sisters. Um, It seems like Martha might be the older sister. She's the one welcoming Jesus into her home, so it's possible that she's the older sister. Um, And we know that Mary and Martha are faithful followers of Jesus. We see them a couple different times throughout the New Testament. Um, They also have a brother. You may have heard of him. His name is Lazarus. He used to be dead, and then Jesus made him alive. Kind of a big deal. Um, that happens in the Gospel of John. And then also in John 11.5, um, it says that Jesus loved them dearly, um, and he stays at their house a couple different times. And so we know that they're faithful followers of Jesus who are kind of with him from close to the beginning of his ministry um, until, for all we know, until long after um, Jesus has Um, ascended. And so we see here that Jesus has a relationship with them. Um, That's a big part of what's going on in the text. And then we also see, um, as we're making observations of the text, that I I really glossed over this the first time. Um, But Jesus is recorded as talking to these two women. And in our day, that's like, that's awesome. Like, I talk to Scott all the time. Um, but in this situation, the rabbis and the teachers, the religious leaders of the day, um, they don't teach women exclusively for sure, um, and maybe not even um, in the synagogues. And so this is actually very countercultural of Jesus to be teaching Mary and Martha, and I'm sure that there are other men present. Um, but just a cool note that, Jesus has always valued women um, as part of the kingdom of God. And so that's also um, what's happening here. So we have the two sisters. We kind of have Martha and we have Mary. And we kind of see this contrast um, of what's happening. So we have Martha on one hand and she's possibly the older sister. She's busy with serving Jesus. She's doing the things um, involved with hosting Jesus. And understandably, she's anxious with those things. I don't know if your mom is like my mom, but whenever people come over, it's kind of like, throw away the pillows, anything. We have to get ready. People are coming. Make your beds. They might go upstairs. You know, like, it's a little bit like we're hosting someone. There's things that come up with that that are um, anxiety-inducing. And so Jesus says um, in verse 41 that she is um, worried and anxious. So she's, her emotions are engaged. She's not just busy, um, but her emotions are engaged. And then on the other side, we have Mary. And Mary actually is not recorded as saying anything in this text, but her posture is one of worship. Um, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and that speaks volumes um, for what's happening in this text. So you have Martha, who's busy, and then you have Mary, who is not necessarily busy in the way that we would think of it. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha comes to Jesus, and she's she's very confident with her problem. She brings her, her problem to Jesus, and she actually accuses Jesus of not caring. She says, don't you care um, that my sister has left me to serve alone? And then she tells Jesus exactly what she wants him to do. So tell her to give me a hand. Um, And it's interesting because I'm not sure that I would be quite that confident asking God 
the king of the universe if he cares um, that, that my sister um, is not helping me. But it reminds me a little bit of like the siblings. Like if you have siblings, you know this tension of like you're both doing chores, but then only one of you is doing chores. And then you go to your parent and you're like, you told us both to do chores and I am being faithful and he is not. Are you going to do something about this? Like, are you going to be a fair parent? Um, and that's a little bit what it sounds like. So as I'm thinking through, we have, we have this contrast. We have Martha, and we have Mary, and then we have Jesus, who's really at the center of this um, encounter. And so I think a good way to think about um, what it is that Jesus' response tells us is to look at, first, what does Jesus say, and then what does Jesus not say? So first we have Jesus responding to Martha. Um, he responds in gentleness, but also with firmness. He's, he's not backing down. And one of the things that Jesus does is that he pushes back on Martha's assumption that the things that matter most to her are the things that matter most to him. And I think sometimes I get caught up in that, um, especially, I would like to say that I've outgrown this habit, but especially whenever I was in like middle school, like I was very concerned with hitting home runs in softball. I was very concerned about that. And I was very concerned about the tests that I didn't, didn't study enough for. Um, and whenever I prayed, it showed that those are the things that I thought Jesus also was most concerned about. And it doesn't mean that, that Jesus doesn't care about my softball games or about my grades or even about Martha's tasks, um, but just that our assumption that the things that we're most concerned with are the things that Jesus is most concerned with. Jesus pushes back on that in this text. Um, and he does acknowledge the things that she's distracted by. Um, he doesn't push those off. Um, but instead of intervening, he tells Martha, I understand that you're worried and anxious about these things, but there's only one necessary thing. In verse 42, he says there's one necessary thing. There's a better choice. And that's what he calls Mary's choice of sitting at his feet and listening um, and ultimately being transformed by him. Whenever we know God, we're transformed by him. Um, and so he says that that is the better choice. We're going to talk about what that means for us a little bit later. Um, so those are the things that Jesus does say. So what does Jesus not say um, in this passage? So one thing is that Jesus doesn't condemn Martha for serving or doing the things that are needed to be um, a good host. In fact, Jesus actually cares a lot about hospitality. And this is kind of a lost art in American um, Western um, culture, but hospitality was a really big deal. And it wasn't like you can come over for dinner. It was like you're staying at our house. We're taking care of everything you need. Um, and in Matthew 10, actually, Jesus tells his disciples they're going from town to town proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he says that if there's a town that doesn't welcome them or his word, that they should shake the dust off their feet um, and that those towns will have really dire consequences. If you've ever heard of um, Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, um, they received judgment um, for their sin. And Jesus says it will be worse for them, for these people that do not receive um, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus doesn't diminish the value of hospitality or of good works. Um, and it's important that we don't read that in and say, well, Jesus must just be saying that good works don't matter because he actually doesn't say that. Um, so we, we've looked at Jesus' response. What is Jesus saying and what he's not saying? 
And as we look at a text, I have the tendency, and Scott always says this, I come back to this a lot, um, that I have the tendency to read this section of scripture and kind of go, what does this mean? And just leave it up to Rachel's imagination. Um, What could this mean? What could this mean for me? But instead, we should look down at the text and we should go, okay, what's the context? What's happening around um, this this chapter, um, this passage, whatever it is that we're looking at? And so if we look right above this story, um, above verse 38, starting in verse 25, um, we see that Jesus is interacting with a man of the law. So um, here, if you're a man of the law, you probably went to Harvard or something like that. Um, If you were a man of the law, you went to the synagogue. Um, And so he knows the Jewish law backwards and forwards. um, And he asked Jesus, Um, In verse 25, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, And so Jesus walks him through this parable um, of this man who's robbed on his way um, to Jerusalem from Jericho and how these different people that they're familiar with, a Levite, um, pass by and they don't help him. Um, You may have heard this. There's a lot of um, like nonprofits based off this idea of the Good Samaritan. Um, but the Samaritans were actually this other category. They were um, a different ethnic group. They had different customs, and the Jews avoided them like at all costs. Um, and so Jesus chooses in this parable to have the Good Samaritan be the one who helps this man. And at the end of the story, um, Jesus says in verse 37, at the very end, he says, then Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. So he's telling this man who knows the the word, the law, to go and care for the marginalized. Go and care for those who are outside of the norm, who might even be considered your enemies. And so it's really interesting when we look at these two passages that are right next to each other that almost seem to be saying opposite things. In one, Jesus is saying, go and do the same. Go and do good works. Go and care for the poor, the marginalized, those who are in need. And then on the other hand, when Jesus is talking to Martha, he says, be still. Choose like Mary has chosen um, to listen. And I think that sometimes when we see these passages together, we can think, well, why are these together? And it kind of feels like when we're reading the Bible that Luke whipped out his iPhone it was an 11, and he, <laughs> and he just started filming, and it was like, oh, Jesus is telling the Good Samaritan. Okay, I need a better angle. Okay, and then he goes over, and it's like, Mary and Martha. Okay, I don't know why I'm holding it with two hands. It's only one. Um, and, and then he just played it back for us, and then, like, transcribed it, of like, okay, this is what happened. And In Western culture, we think very linearly. We think very like this happened, then this happened, cause and effect, very much chronological. But the Jewish writers and Luke, who's actually not a Jew, um, thought more circularly. And they're also storytellers. So whenever they're putting these stories together, they, they aren't just putting them together at random, but the way that they're arranged is designed to communicate something deeper um, than just the text themselves. And so it's really interesting that Luke decided to put these two right next to each other. They're almost juxtapositioned. And I think that there's something for us there. And it's like, what do we do with these two stories that seem a little bit opposite of each other? Um, and what do we do with Mary and Martha? This kind of weird, like, one of them is doing good things and one of them is listening to Jesus. So, like, what am I supposed to do? 
Um, and those are the, the questions and the things that we're going to talk about in the second half. So if you guys want to um, go to the bathroom, take a break, stretch your legs, do some jumping jacks, whatever you need to do, um, we're going to take a break and then we'll come back in just a second. All right. Thank you, Alec. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I don't even own a robe, so that's unfortunate. Um, so before we jump right in, I'm just on a roll, really, of telling embarrassing stories. And this one is much, much closer to home because it happened like two months ago. So my family and I decided to go skiing. And I've never been skiing before, which is kind of embarrassing as a 21-year-old. Um, but taking nine people skiing is like really expensive. Um, and I didn't know that there was such thing as things other than the dollar menu until I was like 11. So yeah, we never went skiing. Um, but we went this Christmas, and I'd never been. Um, my sister-in-law, Jess, has been skiing her whole life. So we're like, okay, we don't need to go to ski school. We have Jess. And seriously, I, I didn't want to go to ski school, one, because I didn't want to be learning how to ski with a five-year-old. And also because I was scared of falling. So the day comes, we're supposed to go skiing. I'm like, this is going to be really great. But Jess has the stomach bug. So now my brother-in-law, his name is Jonathan. Um, you don't have to remember these, but if you're taking notes, you can just start writing names down. Um, so he is now in charge of me and my two younger siblings learning how to ski. No big deal, except for the fact that he's only been skiing one time. It's fine. It's like you, you figure it out as you go. So he's only been skiing one time. We get to the bunny slope and got my first fall out of the way, uh, out of the ski lift. That was embarrassing. Um, he didn't tell me that you're supposed to lift your skis, and no, it was not common knowledge. So I busted coming out the ski lift um, before I even went any kind of downhill. Um, so <laughs> here are the advice that he gives me. Keep your knees, like, bent, okay, like you've seen, and you kind of, like, side to side to turn. I'm like, this is just like the Wii, Okay. It's like that. It's simple. Um, and also, if you want to stop, in the event that you want to stop, you will need to, um, you pizza. So if you've never been skiing, they're very long, and they stick out in front of you like this. And pizzaing is that you just turn your legs this way to stop. So I go down the bunny hill. I'm like, oh, I feel so good about this. Going down with the eight-year-olds, I'm like, okay, all right. Um, and we go down. And pizzaing works so great on the bunny slope, like so great. And we go down twice, and my brother-in-law is slightly impatient. He's like, okay, enough of the bunny slope. Let's go to the green. I'm like, sure, let's do it. I feel great. Um, so we go, and it starts out flat, confidence booster. It's going flat, and also a lot of polling, which is the worst. Um, and I start seeing people who are ahead of me that are kind of like, I see them and then I don't see them all of a sudden. I'm like, I'm like, this is normal. I'm like, oh, I've definitely been here before. Uh, I know how to ski, okay? Um, and I come up to it and I'm like, surely 
this is not the green. Like, I know how the colors work. Surely this is a blue or something. But in fact, no, it was the green. And I'll tell you the name of it. It's kind of like a trigger word for me now. Um, Sundance. Sounds so happy and beautiful, Sundance. And the arrow's like, okay, this is Sundance. Okay, so I turn and I realized why I wasn't seeing their heads anymore because it was just like a straight drop off. So I go over and I'm like, okay, all right, picking up speed. And I didn't really observe the skiers who are around me very much. I was just thinking of Lindsey Vaughn in the Olympic skiing. And let me tell you, she does not do S-curve turns. No, she keeps it right here, and she seems totally in control. So I'm like, I don't know what these people are doing, snaking across the mountain like this. Um, I just put my knees together, put my, put my ski poles back, and I'm going so fast. <laughs> I'm going so fast. And I'm like, this is normal. Everyone, <laughs> stay calm. No one can see like the whites of my eyes because of the sunglasses. I am flying down the mountain. So. I'm like, okay, I need to slow down. My heart is racing. And I'm like, remember, remember you, Chi-Chi. <laughs> so I start pizzaing like there is no tomorrow. And like I said, pizzaing is super great on the bunny slope. No, not on Sundance. Not on Sundance. When you get past a certain speed, pizzaing is just like creating like snow behind you. And so it was about 30 seconds of like, come on, stop, stop, and nothing. And so it went from I'm going really fast to I'm going to die on the side of this mountain. Um, and I remember one other thing that my sweet brother-in-law told me. If you get going too fast and you can't stop, just lean over and fall. <laughs> it's so gentle, it's so, so humane, way to go out. And I'm like, I don't want to die. I'm only 20. At that time, I hadn't even turned 21. I was like, I want to be 21 at least. So <clears throat> I'm like, okay, I'm literally hurtling down the side of this green. And so I'm like, all right, this is how it ends. So I like start going over. But unfortunately, I didn't even know how to fall correctly because one of my skis, the tip, got stuck in some snow. And so I went from this to this. I got catapulted by my own skis. They betrayed me. And I think I was in the air. It was like my life was flashing before my eyes, like, just making circles. And, yeah, if you, like, get the air knocked out of you, it's very humbling. Like, the hardest thing to do is suddenly breathing. And that's exactly what happened. So after I caught my breath a little bit, um, I, I come to, I wasn't unconscious, um, I just get my bearings, and I look up on the mountain. I'm like, I feel like my whole life is up there. Ski poles, skis, my beanie, my sunglasses. I'm like, my word, like how did my jacket not come off? And as I'm looking, I'm like, wait, my beanie? How did my beanie come off? And I'm like, where's my helmet? <laughs> Behold, at the bottom of the mountain, my helmet is rolling the entire way down the mountain. And then, my brother-in-law, he's doing the S's that he did not tell me you're supposed to do. He flies by and he's like, oh, hey, Rachel. I'm like, I just died on the side of this mountain, but it's fine. So I have to tell you that skiing, well, it was a very humbling experience for sure. But what I really learned 
was never to trust my brother-in-law, um, but also that I, I really thought I knew what was best. I, I had watched Lindsay Vaughn, and it looked so easy. And she's moving so fast. And I think I probably hit the same speed as she did, but just with no control. Um, but I was focused on the wrong thing because I was trying to pizza. Um, and I was doing it in the wrong way. Like, pizzaing is not bad, but that's not how you get down the mountain. Um, and so as we come back to this text, now you guys know one of my most embarrassing stories. Please don't ever say the word Sundance around me. Um, I'm just like, oh. <laughs> um, as we come back to this text, sometimes it's really helpful. We talk about we have these different characters. We have Martha, we have Mary, we have Jesus. And for us to look at the text and say, where do I find myself in the text? Um, and, and as I've been thinking about that, there's really these four reflections that I've kind of had on this text. And so um, they're going to come up on the screen kind of as we go. But the first one is that knowing and being transformed by Jesus is the one necessary thing. So we see Jesus tell this to Martha that there's only one necessary thing. And actually the word that he uses for choice is the same word um, that's used in the Psalms for portion. Um, so in Psalm 73, 26, which is going to come up on the screen, it says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. And that, that portion um, is the same word that Jesus uses for choice when he says that Mary has made the better choice. And so we see this idea that he is what we were made for, that we're satisfied in him alone, that this longing that's inside of us, that we're only made whole because of him. He's the portion um, for us. And all other things flow from this. So when we're with Jesus, our view of everything changes. So how we view ourselves, the way we think about our identities, um, the way we under, understand our families, um, the way we think about our careers, um, even the way that we think about our sexuality, um, all, all of life submits to him when we recognize that knowing him and being transformed by him is the one necessary thing that if everything else was taken away, um, that we would be satisfied and that we would be made whole in him. So the second reflection is that what we do matters. Um, so in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see that Jesus shows us the importance of good works. He, he, shows, he says, go and do the same to the man who asked how to inherit eternal life. Um, and it's, it's important that our faith um, have good works. In James, it says um, that faith without works is dead. Um, and I think sometimes as Christians, we think of like, um, I've become a follower of Jesus and now I'm just waiting for him to come back. I'm just waiting for heaven and what I do right now doesn't really matter. Like Jesus will forgive me, right? So what I do must not matter. But actually it's because of the covenant that we have with God that what we do matters so much. Everything that we do has purpose and should flow from our identities as followers of Jesus. And so everything from the time that we spend on our phones, way too much of it or not enough, that would never be true. Um, the homework that we do, the people that we hang out with, the habits, the good and bad habits that we have, all of those things matter. And I think that sometimes there's a temptation to think, well, if the things 
I do matter, then I just need to do more spiritual things, right? Like, well, there's kind of this equation and like, I spend like seven hours a day, seven plus, um, on school and like, am I supposed to just like start reading the Bible like crazy? Like, listen to it in my sleep? Like, how am I supposed to even out this equation? But I actually don't think that it's this time equation that... um, Obviously, the things that we spend our time on show our priorities, but I think that really the following Jesus shapes the way that we do all of these things and not just the time allotment that we give to things. Um, and, and so what we do, it does matter, um, and it's shaped by being with Jesus. So the third reflection um, is that we can't afford to mix up what is urgent with what is ultimate? So we see Mary, or Martha, I apologize. Um, she's consumed with her activities um, and not with Jesus. He's sitting in her home. Um, and I would very much advise against this, um, but she accuses Jesus of not caring. And then she's justifying herself. She's saying, Jesus, I'm in the right Please justify me and, and intervene on my behalf to make things right. And it's this, this kind of, um, she's, she's focused on something that is not necessary. And so Jesus makes her pivot back um, to an, a better understanding um, of what is the difference between things that are ultimate versus things that are urgent. And we end up sometimes when we mix these things up, doing things that may be good things, um, but not always best things. Um, And I really struggle with this, to be honest. Um, For all of you Enneagram people out there, um, I'm at Enneagram 3, and (laughs) I haven't read any of the book. I just took the test one time, so I'm always like, I'm a 3, I'm a (laughs) 3. And people are like, hey! Um, So I'm a 3, and that means that I'm an achiever. Um, And so my life literally runs on to-do lists. And I I will, like, create new items. I'll, like, vacuum the floor. And then I go to my to-do list, and I'm like, vacuum floor. Check. It's beautiful. It makes me feel so good. It makes me feel so productive. Um, but really, I, I think that this tendency of mine um, can lead to saying yes to everything. Like, sometimes I start saying yes to something before you've even finished asking. And so I end up doing all these things, and there's so many things that's like, oh, gosh, like, I have to do this, and I need to do this, and like, oh, my gosh, I have seven assignments I need to do. Um, Those are always the last things I remember. Um, But what I've realized is that if I, in the moment, if I have a choice between something that is ultimate and something that is urgent, I will almost always choose what's urgent. I find this with lots of other things. In the moment, if I'm presented with cooking dinner, in 30 minutes it will be ready, it's healthy, or eating like graham crackers with peanut butter, I will choose graham crackers with peanut butter every time. It's like I'm a child. But it's like, in the moment, I always choose what's easy and what's convenient. And so I've had to push back against that tendency of mine to mix up what is ultimate and what is urgent. And one of the areas I've really had to work on this in is with prayer. And so in the last year, um, and especially in the last couple months, actually, um, I've really been trying to cultivate this habit of prayer. Um, And it's very humbling to realize how little 
willpower I actually have to like sit down and just do it. Um, and so I've had to create all of these like structures kind of in my life to remind me of what I actually believe is ultimate. So let me tell you guys, I have reminders. I have a habit tracker app. If that doesn't scream achiever, I don't know what does. Um, I have a specific time that I have to do it. If it does not happen in the morning, it is not happening. Um, I even have to put my phone on do not disturb because as soon as it buzzes, I'm choosing something that's urgent over something that's ultimate. And so I've had to create these structures and these reminders in my life of what is ultimate versus what is urgent. Um, and we learn those things when we're in community and when we're in the word, um, not mixing up those things. And so the last one is really about knowing the difference. Um, how do we know the difference between something that's urgent and something that's ultimate? And we see in both the stories of the Good Samaritan and in the story of Mary and Martha that it's being close to Jesus um, that gives the discernment to understand what is the necessary thing. In this situation, do I need to go and do and care for the poor and marginalized um, or care for my roommates or care for my neighbors? Or in this moment, do I need to cultivate prayer? Do I need to listen um, to Jesus and be at his feet? And the reason that we can tell the difference and in, in the place we can tell the difference is when we're with Jesus. Um, and I think that for a while I thought it would just be like, what is ultimate? What is like urgent? I don't know. Um, and what I've realized is that there's my agenda and there's an agenda of the kingdom. And it's kind of like a class like, the longer you spend in a class, the more you just kind of understand how it works and how the teacher does things and when you turn in assignments. And if you're using the textbook that you paid $100 for, probably not. Um, but it's, how do, we, how do we identify what's urgent and what is ultimate? Um, and it's through being in the Word. It's through cultivating a habit of prayer. It's through being in community with older believers. Um, it's through committing to the local church, those five things that we have. Um, it's through serving that we learn the agenda of this kingdom that we're a part of. And it's only then when we can separate in our minds, okay, this is something that is urgent and it, it really desires my attention, but what are the things that I truly believe are ultimate? And I want to choose those things and have everything in my life flow from being with Jesus. And so as I've looked at this text, I've, I've really been challenged um, to try and wrap my head around what do these things, these four reflections I've kind of come to, what do those mean for me? What am I supposed to do with that? And I really had to ask myself some questions. Um, and I'm going to, we have them on the screen, but it's going to be just a second and we'll put them up there. Um, one of the questions that I've had to ask myself is, what do the things that I do on a regular basis, whether it's every day, the things that I consistently do, or every week, or every month, um, what do those things reflect about what I believe is ultimate? Like if somebody were just to look at my like routine, the things that I regularly do in a month, what would they say is important? The things that I spend my money on, the, where I spend my time, the things that my emotions are caught up in. Um, what does that reflect about what I believe is the one necessary thing? Because if it's something other than Jesus, then, and often it is, um, then there's conviction and there's repentance that has to happen. 
Um, and another question I've, I've had to work on in that same vein of thinking about, it's not only our time, um, but it's our emotions. It's the things like Martha, she's, she's caught up by it. She's worried and she's anxious. And so what do the things that my emotions are caught, caught up in um, tell me about what I really believe is, is necessary and is ultimate? What, what are the things that I really get anxious about? Are those things that are ultimate things? Uh, what are the things that I could care less about? Um, are those ultimate things or are they urgent things? Um, and so looking at the things that have a hold on our emotions um, is a really good place to start of what do I really believe is ultimate? What do I believe is necessary? Um, and then the last question that I've had to work through a little bit is what about my life would change or would shift if I really believed that Jesus is the one thing necessary for my life. Um, and this can look different for followers of Jesus and people who have not yet decided to follow Jesus. Because if you're a believer and you've decided to follow Jesus, that um, he is your portion, um, then you have already taken the biggest step of putting your allegiance um, in, in the kingdom of God. But sometimes we get turned around and our focus gets mixed up. Like with Martha, she's a devout follower of Jesus, but she's still got this mixed up. And so that's a good question for us as believers. And for people who are not yet followers of Jesus, this is a good question to think about. What would it look like? What would it mean for my life? What would change if I said, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus? What would it look like to be for all of these activities in my life to flow from Jesus, believing that um, his life and his death and his resurrection from the grave, that if he rose from the dead, he's worthy of all of my, all of my attention and all of my time and all the things um, that I do. And so it's important for us as believers and, and non-believers to think about what in my life would change um, if I really believed that Jesus was the one necessary thing. Um, and so those, those questions are going to come up on the screen. I'm actually going to give you a couple minutes um, to reflect on those things. Um, and then I'm going to pray um, to close us out. So take a second and reflect on those things. Father, we come to you tonight um, wanting to be like Mary, wanting to have a posture of humility um, and a posture of worship, um, and we want to be like the man you told to go and do the same, um, to be um, faithful followers of you who um, are caring for those who are around us, 
um, who are sacrificing um, our good and our time and our energy um, that others might know um, what it is to be loved by you, Father. Um, and so I just ask that you would convict us um, of the areas that we have not um, believed and acted on the truth that you are what is necessary. Um, that all else be taken away, all the relationships and the careers, um, whatever it is, Father, that even if all those things were to fade away, that we would be satisfied in you, that we are whole because of what Jesus did um, and being in relationship with you. Father, I pray that that truth um, would sink in, Father, and that um, our lives would be different. Father, and I pray um, if there's um, somebody here who's thinking about what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does this look like, um, Father, that you would show them that it's better than they could ever imagine. Um, Father, and that we as your, your people um, would be witnesses to that. Um, and ultimately, Father, that everything that we do would glorify you um, until you come back um, and make all things new again. Father, we love you, and it's your name that I pray all of these things. Amen.